But what it is is instead of uh, trailer talk tonight, we do have um, some specials uh, getting us some background and as well as local information about the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. We're going to replay one of our local interviews coming up in the second part of this hour. Uh, and But before that, we do have uh, a special from the BBC, a short documentary and conversation to talk about how did uh, Ukraine get here and what's in the Ukraine, Ukrainian and Russian history that informs this moment. Uh, that's coming up in the next hour right here on Radio Catskill. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, Republic Radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania, and we are keeping you connected. Uh, rain and snow showers are likely this evening, overnight low down to 24. Some clouds tomorrow with a high of 29, so it's going to be a bit cooler on the other side of tonight's precipitation. Tomorrow night, few clouds and cold again at night with overnight lows in the upper single digits. Okay, let's uh, get the latest headlines first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The House of Representatives overwhelmingly approved a non-binding resolution expressing solidarity with Ukraine. NPR's Dieter Walsh reports on the show of support for an ally under siege. Ukrainian-born Indiana Republican Congresswoman Victoria Spartz spoke emotionally on the House floor about how inspired Americans were by those fighting back against the Russian invasion. And they see your struggles and praying with you and standing with you. And this resolution from we the people, from this United States Congress, is it evidence? The resolution demands an immediate ceasefire and full withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukraine. The measure backs economic sanctions against Russia and reaffirms Ukraine's sovereignty. It also puts members on record, saying the House of Representatives would never recognize any government Russian President Vladimir Putin attempted to install. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. The World Health Organization says six metric tons of medical goods destined for Ukraine will arrive in Poland tomorrow. But NPR's Ari Daniel reports that actually getting them where they're so desperately needed is a challenge. As the conflict escalates, the WHO is advocating for an immediate humanitarian corridor to get its supplies to Ukrainian facilities treating the sick and war-wounded. Michael Ryan is executive director of the organization's health emergencies program. These are ordinary civilians being broken, and the health system is going to have to put them back together again. If we do not get oxygen into the system and other critical drugs, people will die needlessly. With reports of attacks on Ukrainian hospitals, which are a violation of international law, the WHO says safe passage of the supplies must be established immediately. Ari Daniel, NPR News. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says the central bank is set to begin raising interest rates in a couple of weeks in an effort to regain control over soaring prices. NPR Scott Horsley reports Russia's invasion of Ukraine, though, is adding new uncertainties. Gasoline prices in the U.S. have jumped by about 12 cents a gallon since the invasion began. Grain prices are also up. That could put further pressure on people's pocketbooks when inflation was already the highest it's been in nearly four decades. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell told lawmakers the Fed is preparing to rein in prices by raising interest rates later this month, most likely beginning with a quarter-point rate hike. Inflation is too high. It's, we understand that, and you know we're working on it. It's going to take some time, but we're going to get it back under control. Powell says he expects inflation to moderate later this year, but adds if it does not, he and his colleagues are prepared to act more aggressively. Scott Horsley, NPR News. 
Washington. The U.S. economy continued to expand at a modest pace during the mid-January through mid-February period. That's according to the Fed's Beige Book. On Wall Street today, the Dow jumped 596 points. This is NPR. The number of new coronavirus cases reported worldwide continued to come down last week, falling by 16 percent as a month-long decline in COVID-19 infections continues. That's according to figures from the World Health Organization. The UN Health Agency in its latest weekly report on the pandemic says deaths are also down from the previous week. Numerous countries have been moving to ease COVID-19 restrictions, including countries across Europe, Britain, Sweden, and Denmark. Comes as case levels fall and immunization campaigns continue. The music director of the Miami-based New World Symphony, conductor Michael Tilson Thomas, says he'll be stepping down in June. He's disclosed he's been battling an aggressive form of brain cancer. Jeff London reports. The 77-year-old maestro announced last summer he'd be canceling concerts in the fall as he recovered from brain surgery, and he triumphantly returned, conducting several major American orchestras over the last few months. But in a statement, Tilson Thomas explained he's been diagnosed with glioblastoma multiform and, in addition to surgery, had received chemotherapy and radiation. He said the cancer is in check, but noted, quote, glioblastoma is a stealthy adversary its recurrence is unfortunately the rule rather than the exception. While he will continue to conduct and compose, Tilson Thomas is stepping down from the administrative duties of the New World Symphony, a prestigious training orchestra for young musicians he founded 34 years ago. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London. Oil rose to $110.60 a barrel in New York today. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Clavio, working to help brands deliver personalized email and SMS campaigns that drive revenue and create genuine customer relationships at klaviyo.com slash NPR. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppick, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. From Dog Mountain Lodge, providing dog boarding and grooming, also boarding cats, birds, and other exotic pets. Located in Keshekta, New York, and on the web at DogMountainLodge.com. And from listeners like you. Good evening. Welcome to a little bit of special programming, a change from our usual schedule here on Radio Catskill. Just to take a moment uh, to get some extra information about uh, Ukraine and Russia, what's happening there, the history behind it, and uh, some of the local reaction. Coming up in the second half of the program, we'll uh, be replaying the the extended version of the interview that Patricio Rabio conducted with Nadia Reich, uh, Sullivan County Legislator for District 2, Ukrainian-American, getting a, a, her perspective on recent events. That's coming up in the second half of the program. First, we have this uh, deep dive that happens in just under half an hour uh, from the BBC. I mean, it's happening now, but uh, over the course of just 27 minutes here, they're going to talk about uh, some of the history behind what's going on and the ways that it does and does not connect to current events. Hello. To have a better understanding of the present and look into the future, we need to turn to history. 
Those words were written by the man behind the invasion of Ukraine. They're from the now notorious essay in which Vladimir Putin sets out to prove that Russians and Ukrainians are, and this is another quote, one people, a single whole. At one level, the statement is, of course, nonsense, the idea that events which happened many hundreds of years ago can be used to justify a war today is plainly preposterous. But this is certainly not the first time a leader bent on war has paraded the past as a rallying point, and the passions the past stirs can be dangerous, especially when it's twisted into propaganda. So we're going to unravel the myths from the reality of the past thousand years or so, An ambitious task in under half an hour, but we have just the team to do it. Ludmila Sharipova is an assistant professor at Nottingham and specialises in Ukrainian and East European history in the early modern period. Timothy Garton-Ash is the professor of European studies at Oxford and was, during the final days of the Soviet Empire, the commentator we all knew we had to read. And Anna Reid is the author of Borderland, a journey through the history of Ukraine. Thanks so much to all of you for coming in. Lubina Sharapova, and I should perhaps say you, of course, were yourself Ukrainian born. Born and bred in Kiev. Uh, my identity is British Ukrainian. Perhaps we could begin with you and you could tell us a little bit about clearly a huge fact of Ukrainian history, but one I suspect many people listening to this won't know about, which is this great empire called Kievan Rus, which mm-hmm. existed. What was it? How far did it stretch? Some enthusiastic assessments of the time of the foundation of the Kiev, or foundation of Kiev, take it as far back as the fifth century. But this is probably legendary. There definitely was settlement where Kiev now is in the late ninth century, and we know for sure that in 988 the Kievan prince Volodymyr baptized the population of his city and of his state, the Kievan Rus. And this is, we have more or less the beginning of history for us. And and it stretches where? The empire's territory, it took most of the territory of present-day Ukraine, Belarus, and quite a big chunk of present-day Russia. And and that point about the baptism is crucial, isn't it? Because that is the moment at which Christianity and a Christian civilization becomes established in that part of the world. That's right, and there's a rather lovely legend from one of the medieval chronicles about it, which said that he realised he needed an up-to-date religion, Vladimir the Great, and he sent fact-finding missions off to the to the Muslims and the Catholics. And they came back and they said, I'm afraid the Catholics, they spend too much time praying and fasting. And, and the Muslims, they're not allowed to eat pork or drink wine. And so Vladimir said, well, those things are completely out of the question. So orthodoxy, it's got to be. And that's a lovely story, but behind it is an important point, which is that orthodoxy becomes part of the sense of identity that both today's Russians and today's Ukrainians feel very strongly. That's right. And Vladimir is supposed in legend to have been baptised at Hersonesus, which is on the outskirts of Sevastopol in Crimea. And it's one of the reasons that Sevastopol and Crimea is sort of doubly sacred in the Russian version of history. It's not only the site of the Crimean War and of the Great Siege during the Second World War, it's where Christianity arrived in Russia. And is that period something to which Ukrainians today look back? Uh, President Putin clearly does, he writes about it in his in his essay.
And I suppose if you compare it to this country, English history, we're talking about a period not that far off the Norman conquest. So in this country, that period is still relevant. Is, is it something that you, as a Ukrainian, look back to? Well, it is, of course, important, but the unhealthy amount of attention to that period that President Putin gives it was not en vogue before these debates uh, started. We were not fixated on it. We simply knew this was the case. And by the way, Crimea was very much part of that Kievan polity long before Moscow had been founded as a city. Well, that's a really, I wanted to ask you about, that's a really important point, isn't it? If you, we don't, but if we accept Vladimir Putin's way of looking at all this, you could argue that if anybody's trying to retake anybody back, it should be Kiev trying to take Moscow because it's the, the senior city, if you, if you like. Could I use an analogy? Please analogy. Yeah. The United States of America used to be a British or English colony. The parallel would be as if the United States of America had suddenly started telling us now that there is no such place as England, really, and that England is the United States of America. <laughs> is, that, is that? Yes, Timothy Gartner, you want to come in there. Edward, could I come on that? Because actually, I think if we're trying to bring home to people what Vladimir Putin is saying now, it is very like England invading Ireland saying, well, most of us speak the same language. We have a shared culture and you, Ireland, were part of Britain for a very long time. So we belong together and you belong with us. Let's move forward, if we could, now to the whole question of Ukrainian nationalism or sense of a Ukrainian nation, which I suppose really developed in the 19th century when, when many other, what we now think of as nations across Europe, were actually beginning to have a similar spirit. Well, they're clearly beginnings before that in, in Volkov Smelnitsky's great rebellion in the 17th century and in literature. But yes, of course, like almost all other or virtually all other Central East European nations, it's formed into the modern notion of a nation which requires its own state in the course of the 19th century. The difference being that unlike, say, Poland, it doesn't get its own state for very long before most of the country is incorporated into the Soviet Union after the Russian Revolution, while the western part of what is now Ukraine is incorporated into interwar Poland. Ludmilla, I just want to ask you a little bit about language, because yes. as I understand it, during, during the 19th century, the whole question of Ukrainian language became a, a sort of rallying point, a focus for a national spirit. I would like to go back to very good analogy with Ireland, the relationship between Ukraine and Russia being analogous in a certain sense to the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. Of course, the great difference is the difference in religion, uh, the Irish and the English did not have the same religion in the early modern period, and both nations um, based their identity on their respective religions, which was not the case for Ukraine and Russia. And the same goes for the question of the language. These are different languages. Ukrainian and Russian are different languages, but they are very similar. They belong to the same linguistic group. And historically speaking, geopolitically speaking, this is a problem. 
The Russian Tsarist state was very well aware of it, and it tried to eradicate Ukrainian as a separate language from as early as the middle of the 19th century, the infamous M. Yukas, mm -hmm. which forbade the use of Ukrainian in theaters, in education, in newspapers, well, Only peasants, uneducated peasants, so to speak, were allowed to use it in their peasant dwellings. And that was more or less the end of it. And, and Timas, you, you reminded us this is another area where President Putin has um, focused on in his essay. Indeed. Vladimir Putin fundamentally thinks that Russian speakers are Russians. He said it many times. I myself heard him say it many years ago in 1994. And as I pointed out to him in that case, then the Irish, the Canadians and the Australians should all be part of Britain. Um, Tim, I'd like to go on to the some of the real horror stories of the 20th century, beginning with the famine in Ukraine in the 1930s, which extraordinarily in his essay, Vladimir Putin describes, I think, as a joint Russian and Ukrainian tragedy. It, it, it wasn't quite like that, was it? It was a deliberate policy decision under Stalin to starve millions of Ukrainians to punish them, in effect. And it was one of the great genocidal tragedies of the early 20th century. Well, Ludmilla, what did that do to Ukrainian attitudes towards Moscow? It sapped the strength of the Ukrainian nation. It taught it uh, the wrong lesson, that submission was the way to survival and that that rebellion or any protest would have been counterproductive and probably deadly. Anna, how would you interpret the impact of the famine? Just take us through what was done to make it happen. It starts off with food requisitioning brigades arriving in the villages in the summer of 1928. And then in the end of 29, that turns into a campaign of de-kulakization. And the kulaks were then ramped up by Soviet propaganda. They were demonized. They were bloodsuckers. They were exploiters. You know, they were revanchists. And they you were counted as wealthy, wealthy farmers. <laughs> they, were wealth, they, were, they, were, they were wealthier farmers. But wealthy meant you've got a tin roof, not a thatched roof on your cottage. It meant you've got two cows instead of one. It means that at harvest time, you employ your nephew to help you out. And Anybody could denounce anybody for being a kulak, so it became a vehicle for personal score setting, as you can imagine. And there were actual quotas set from Moscow, handed down, Father NKVD, as in the purges of the of the urban population, which local organisations had to had, had to fulfil. They had to fulfil these quotas. So the, the whole kulak thing was a red herring. It was just all about shoving people onto trains and shoving them east. There was mass deportation of people. Famine hits in the spring of 1932. And this requisitioning is going on all the way through of every sort of food. They take everything, seed, corn, potatoes hidden in cellars, livestock has long been taken, everything. And it's all taken to the cities to keep the urban populace happy. I mean, that's the sort of rational reason behind it. And then through that winter of 32, 33, famine hits. And during the first half of 1933, We think, I mean, estimates differ, but they coalesce around 3.9 million people 
die in Ukraine. I mean, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary yeah. number. And all this way, all this time is being totally unreported. Doesn't, nothing about it appears in the Soviet press. Nothing about it appears in the Western press, thanks to extraordinary sort of amerta by the Western press corps in Moscow who want to keep their visas and their contacts. I mean, very little real reporting gets out. Timothy Garth-Nash, do you think the impact of that is still felt politically in Ukraine now? Uh, Undoubtedly, a massive impact. By the way, I think there was one journalist, wasn't there? If you watch a wonderful film called Mr. Jones, there was one American journalist who... Oh, he's Welsh, Welsh. (laughs) One Welsh journalist, to credit him. At the same time as most of Ukraine was going through this utterly traumatic experience, which obviously shapes a sense of, so to speak, national martyrology, but also of of, of national solidarity. The part that was in Poland was experiencing much more relative autonomy and freedom. So Ukrainian culture, national institutions could develop, but in a very tense relationship with the Polish government, the Polish authorities, which a tension that then gets worse in the 1940s. I think that helps to explain two things. One is you know, how still the territories around what we call Lviv now, what the Poles call Lvov, um, has a somewhat different character, but also the extraordinary sense of very powerful solidarity that you see from Poland to Ukraine. Well, before we leave that period, I'd like to say a word or two about the other great event of that period, which was the Second World War, which again, Vladimir Putin sort of skips over. I don't know, Ludmilla, whether you'd agree with this, but presumably what happened then is the reason we've heard from Vladimir Putin, these strange accusations that the regime in, in Kiev is, is, is Nazi. Well, I wouldn't like to start psychoanalyzing Mr. Putin. That may take me too far. But I think, uh, yes, there is a connection between uh, his accusations and the fact that there was Ukrainian collaboration with the occupation, Nazi occupation forces during the Second World War. But I'm sorry to say that whatever country in Europe was occupied, collaborated. This was the order of the day. There is nothing unusual. And it was, again, an immensely traumatic time for Ukraine, wasn't it? Yes, because, uh, well, to begin with, in some areas of Ukraine, the Nazis were greeted as uh, liberators from the horrors of Bolshevism. But very soon it transpired that liberators they were not. And, uh, you know, their racial theories and hostility to Slavs meant that um, it was no improvement in the lot of the Ukrainians. Anna, how would you say that period, the Second World War, is remembered in Ukraine today? The, the hot-button figure is um, Bandera, Stepan Bandera. He was a radical Ukrainian nationalist. He was an ethno-nationalist operating in Poland between the wars, headed a terrorist group which assassinated Polish officials. And then Germany groomed him up, helped finance him, and let him organise a couple of small, I mean, a few thousand each, um, Ukrainian battalions with which they marched into Ukraine in 1941. He, he, however, was then locked up. They, the Germans quickly realised he was a very loose cannon. Within literally a few days, they locked him up. Um, so he spent the rest of the war in jail. But this, this word that Banderivtsi, Bandera followers, is, 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 is flung about by Putin as a, sort of, as a stick to beat 
Ukrainians with. I'm going to have to move on um, to more recent times, um, I think, and, and to 1991 and the end of the Soviet Union. Timothy Gartnash, could you just give us a sketch of what Ukraine looked like then? Apart from anything else, it suddenly became one of the world's great nuclear powers. So it was the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. It was one of the the, the most important parts of the Soviet Union. Incidentally, it had also been given Crimea by um, Nikita Khrushchev in 1954. And it had, as you rightly say, uh, a large part of the uh, Soviet nuclear arsenal. What then happens is that as part of the process by which the different republics, but above all Russia under Boris Yeltsin, want to separate themselves from Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, essentially the leaders, still formerly Soviet leaders of Russia, Ukraine, and what is now Belarus, get together in a hunting lodge in Belarus near the end of 1991 and say, we're going to dissolve the Soviet Union and create what's called a confederation of independent states. And from that flows Ukrainian independence, for which a very large majority votes in a referendum, if memory serves, the figure was around 90%. Interestingly enough, a majority even in Crimea. And Ludmilla, you, I think, lived through that process yourself. Yes. What did it feel like? Um, it felt exciting, although, of course, nobody knew uh, exactly what was the meaning of those process where and where it would lead us. I remember myself as an enthusiastic supporter of Ukraine's independence. And did, did you have a vision, do you think, of what the future might hold at that stage? I would like uh, to say that I did, but the truth is that I didn't. Uh, <laughs> do you think that's true in general, Anna? Do you think people knew where they were going at that stage, or it was just so, so sudden and so extraordinary? I think I think that whole part of the world was sort of reeling slightly. Mm. I, li I lived in Kiev. I was a journalist in Kiev in the in the early mid nineties. And it's the, the being independent still felt sort of slightly provisional. Quite a lot of people treated it sort of slightly tongue in cheek. And that is completely, completely changed now. I mean, that is the absolutely dramatic thing in the, in the 30 years since. And now its sense of identity is incredibly strong and inspirational, as we're seeing right well, now. And, and one of the things that really changed that or began to change that was the Orange Revolution of 2004, uh, to 2005. Can you explain what, what happened then and why it was so important both to uh, Ukrainian sense of themselves but also to the attitudes in Moscow? So I, I think what Anna said is really important to understand because the map of Europe is quite full of countries which didn't necessarily have to be. Nations and particularly states are not created simply by a shared past. It's by a shared vision of the future, a, a will to live together. The great French historian Ernest Renan called them a plebiscite on every day. And as Anna rightly said, that will was not fantastically well defined in the 1990s. And two great formative 
events forged a really strong sense of Ukrainian national identity and wanting to be a sovereign independent state. They were, first of all, the Orange Revolution of 2004-05, which I was lucky enough to witness on the streets of Kiev, where... Uh, to put it as most simply, an election was stolen in a country which had a very imperfect democracy, but a huge uh, popular movement, a velvet revolution, uh, people camping out on the streets in the great square in the center of Kiev, but the Maidan, by the way, in temperatures down to minus 10 degrees, demanding that the candidate they believed to have been elected should indeed become the democratic president of Ukraine. That was the first defining moment. It didn't end very well, because in the end, the guy who'd been defeated, rightly, Yanukovych, came back. But then you have the second defining moment, the Euromaidan of 2013-2014. Both of those um, events raise the question of the degree to which those revolutions were seen by Moscow as revolutions against relations with Russia, and the degree to which they really were that. Uh, Ludmilla, you're, you're nodding at, at that thought. Yes, looking back at 2004 and 2014, it is plain to see that these are the focal points when Ukraine's identity began to be formed in earnest, something that hadn't happened back in 1991 when Ukraine's identity or, or Ukrainian's identity was as good as non-existent. And Timothy Gartnash, if we look at 2013 to 14, if we look at the Maidan revolution, that was really at the heart of it was the question of uh, Ukraine's relationship with Europe and therefore Ukraine's relationship with Russia. Yes and no. We always tend to see it in categories of us and them, the West or Russia. But it's also about democracy versus authoritarian rule. To go back to the Orange Revolution for a moment, a, a famous Russian journalist said that the most important event in Russian politics in the last 20 years happened outside Russia. It was the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. And it wasn't even so much in 2004-05 that Putin thought Ukraine was necessarily going west to the EU and NATO. It was his fear that it would become a flourishing democracy. And that would be something that his own people would then want to emulate. In 2013-14, it acquires this geopolitical element because to cut a long story short, the EU, having very reluctantly opened a perspective for what was called Eastern Partnership, develops an association agreement with Ukraine, which President Yanukovych, who I mentioned, initially signs, and then under pressure from Russia, which offered a big carrot as well as a stick, reneges on that agreement, whereupon tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians come onto the streets of Kiev, particularly onto the Maidan, christened the Euromaidan, to say that they want to get closer to Europe. And that's that defining moment of 2014. Anna, you wanted to come in then. It, it, I'm, it's about values, the, the Maidan. It's interesting. It's about looking forward. It's about what kind of country you want to have. Um, it was an incredibly um, emotional and inspiring moment. It was a mass movement which lasted for several months through the winter. 
of, of 2013-14. I mean, literally a million people came out at weekends into central Kiev and and then the, 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 the church bells would ring in the middle of the night when the police were sort of planning a battle, gathering to, for a, to try and break up the sort of permanent camp in the centre of it all. And people would get up in the middle of the night and go down and join the camps that the police couldn't charge. I and mean, it was an extraordinary thing. And people who participated can't talk about it without without welling up. And it took in everybody, every age group, every socioeconomic group, every bit of the country. I mean, it was extraordinary mass movement. And it's that. And Ukrainians call it the revolution of dignity. And it's all about us wanting to be treated decently by decent government. Well, that is probably a good moment to draw these uh, discussions to to a close. Um, Towards the end of his essay, Vladimir Putin returns to that idea that Ukrainians and Russians are one people. Our kinship has been transmitted from generation to generation, he writes. And before we finally go, I want to ask each of you how the current conflict, um, the one we're going through at the moment, is going to shape the way future Ukrainians understand their history. Quite speculative, I know. But Timothy Gardnash, let me begin with you. So first of all, you said that uh, Vladimir Putin thinks they're one people. Vladimir Putin is the person who has done probably most to persuade the Ukrainians that they're actually two different peoples, the Ukrainians and the Russians. He is a kind of, you know, unintentional evil godfather of Ukrainian independence and Ukrainian national identity. In terms of the truly heroic resistance that the Ukrainians, not just soldiers, but also civilians, are putting up at the moment to this fearsome, terrible Russian aggression, I would like to think that for decades to come, Ukrainians will look back and say this was our finest hour. Anna, how do you think this would be, will be written one day um, by future historians? Ukrainians are sort of taking their lives day by day at the moment. Um, it's very, very hard to look forward and to envisage the future because that means contemplating the possibility of losing your country for, for the foreseeable future. Lord Miller, perhaps I could just slightly reframe the question, ask you how you hope these events will be remembered in Ukrainian history. I hope Ukraine survives uh, in one piece and goes on to become a successful European nation. The uh, events since the 24th of February 2022 would go down in Ukrainian history as the final moment in the formation of uh, this new successful nation. I have to say that I have a friend back in Kiev who has been pro-Russian for all of her life, after a night of heavy shelling and uh, uh, tanks fighting very close to where she lived, she is now firmly pro-Ukrainian. And this conversion, uh, almost like a religious conversion, is amazing to me. And I think a lot of people may have gone through a very similar transformation. That's a very good thought on which to end this um, discussion. But Miller Sharipova, Timothy Garth Nash, Anna Reid, thank you all very much indeed. You've been listening to Ukraine. How did we get here? Special presentation from the BBC World Service. Which, by the way, BBC uh, World Service airs uh, pretty much every night here in the late nights on Radio Catskill. And we have BBC News Hour from the BBC during the day. And uh, 
I've got to say the BBC's reporting on this, uh, being such a global news entity, has been phenomenal. And uh, I appreciated hearing this special. That's why we wanted to replay it for you tonight, to give you some more perspective on what's happening uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So that was some context. Uh, we are bringing you this special programming in place of Sabrina Artel's trailer talk, which will return its regular time in a couple weeks. Uh, when we come back, we will take a look at state and local reactions to what's happening in Ukraine. Stay tuned. There is an affront on our justice. If we don't recognize this moment, as being a true and defining moment in our nation's history, it kind of should serve as a call to action. I still have a dream. Civil rights attorney DeWitt Lacey sounding the drum for our dreams and our lives. The Janice Adams Show, Saturday at noon. Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. RiverReporter.com. From the Women's Health Center in Holmesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Welcome back. This is Radio Catskill. And again, this is uh, some special programming just to catch us up on uh, events in Europe with Russia invading Ukraine. Uh, this is in place of Trailer Talk with Sabrina Artel. And uh, not only will Sabrina Artel be back in two weeks' time uh, at her regular time here in this time slot on a Wednesday, but next Friday, tune in at 3 p.m. because Sabrina Artel has an interview with a local Ukrainian-American getting their perspective on what's going on. That will air in place of fresh air next Friday, March 11th. We, we have another interview that we did with a local Ukrainian-American. We'll be getting to in one moment. But first, I want to look at the state response in our listening area. Last week, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf condemned Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And on Sunday, he sent a letter to uh, the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board urging it to remove Russian source products from fine wine and good spirit stores in the Commonwealth and cease selling them as quickly as possible. So in his letter that he drafted on Sunday, he says, quote, I appreciate the board's efforts to quickly identify Russian source products currently being sold at fine wine and good spirit stores. I urge the board to take these further actions as a show of solidarity and support for the people of Ukraine and an expression of our collective revulsion with the unprovoked actions of the Russian state, end quote from Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf. And as we reported earlier in the week, uh, New York Governor Kathy Hochul joined the European Union, United Kingdom as well, by signing an executive order on Sunday to ban support of businesses with Russia after its military invaded Ukraine. She directed the state comptroller's office to evaluate New York's business dealings with the Russian-based companies. Uh, New York will avoid new investments, too. Hochul says the goal is to divest companies in order to hurt Russia's war efforts. The state will not permit its own investment activity, whether directly or indirectly, to aid Russia as it commits these human rights violations and atrocities. 
And whereas this order is a testament to the values and the economic strength of New York State, which is a higher gross domestic product than all of Russia. And along with that uh, order regarding Russian businesses on uh, Sunday, uh, Governor Hochul also said that Ukrainians are welcome to make New York their home. We now have nearly 400,000 refugees. We have said we'll open up our hearts, our homes, our resources to the people of the Ukraine to say we stand with you. If you need a place to stay, you want to come over here, we will help you become integrated into our community. Governor Hochul pointed out that New York has one of the largest Ukrainian populations in the United States. Uh, She claims that the state has a larger economy than Russia, which gives New York special economic leverage over the Russian government. Okay, so that's uh, kind of the state response that we've been hearing uh, in the last week uh, uh, to events in Europe. Uh, What about uh, people who uh, are Ukrainian in our listening area and Ukrainian-American since, as the governor said, uh, one of the largest Ukrainian populations in the United States is here in New York State? Well, um, earlier, uh, late last week, uh, Patricio Rabayo spoke with Sullivan County Legislator for District 2, Nadia Reich, who is Ukrainian-American and has family in the Ukraine. She spoke with Patricio Robayo late last week and shared her perspective on what's happening there. Uh, and Patricio started off the conversation by asking what Nadia's uh, reactions were to um, the, the invasion as she's watching it happen on the news like so many of us were. that in today's world we have a person like mr putin who thinks he deserves to take a sovereign independent country and dominate it um it it is just unimaginable that the expense of thousands of people being killed to date ukraine has um fought a war on the eastern end with russia with the separatists, over 14,000 people have died. And we are now losing thousands more that are being displaced, that are now refugees entering other countries. And young men are dying, as well as innocent citizens. This is horrific. And if the world doesn't see this, and if the world doesn't interfere with stopping Putin, then there's something majorly wrong. So I plead with everybody to please call your representative, whoever it may be, state, Congress, and let them know that they must impose stricter sanctions on Mr. Putin. They must do whatever they can to stop this war. We need to implement a full trade embargo on Russia. We need to seize all of the assets held in the West of Russian oligarchs and government officials, we must definitely move or remove Russia from the SWIFT international payment system. We also need to help Ukraine by delivering anti-air, anti-rocket, and naval defense systems in Ukraine. Um, what is happening is not going to stop. We need to provide maximum military, humanitarian, and financial assistance to Ukraine. Uh, Now, it needs to be done now. We cannot wait. They're going to take Kiev. That is what the um, intelligence is saying. Um, I spoke to my family in Ukraine this morning. 
They are no longer in their homes. They've moved out uh, to a safer location. Very difficult to get anything through, um, any type of communication. Phones are working spottily. Same with uh, Internet. So I fear for all of the people in Ukraine. And the diaspora here has been wonderful in trying to disseminate this information. How is your family in, in Ukraine and how are they dealing with this? And you said they they're, had to leave their homes and move to a safer place. The images we see here on TV is just horrendous. People are sitting in the subway st- uh, stations. And another one was uh, a hospital where they have the uh, newborns uh, who were in, in the NICU unit had been moved to the basement. And you see the nurses there hand pumping air into these lungs to these babies. And just, just imagining the tragedy of being brought into this world and under this under these conditions, what do you think is is the response that you has the U.S. has done so far? Maybe you're, are you saying the sanctions that not President Biden not enough, not enough, absolutely not enough. Uh, had they accepted Ukraine into NATO, and again, it's not my call. Ukraine was ready to enter NATO. There was yeah. no reason not to let it in there. Uh, we would have had NATO protection, right? Uh, who is Russia to say that they don't want Ukraine in NATO? They have no no claim on Ukraine. Ukraine is an independent, sovereign country. These people want democracy. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary this past August 24th in 2021. We do not belong to Russia. We do not want to belong to Russia, certainly not under Mr. Putin. Do we like the Russians? Absolutely. They're like our brothers, right? We, we speak a similar language, but we do not belong to Russia. Mr. Putin is delusional. He wants to go back to his empire, which is even pre-USSR. I don't even know where he wants. He's deluding himself. Yeah. Um, I believe he's there's something mentally wrong with him. Again, that is outside of my professional purview, but he is not right. Uh, he is not correct. And many young, innocent people will die that are in the military. Many innocent civilians will die. Again, like you said with the NICU, look how many innocent children are suffering needlessly. They initiated the war, Mr. Putin and his administration. They initiated it. They must stop it. They don't want to stop it. They want to go all the way to the end. They want to take Ukraine as well as other countries. So this is what we need to fear from him. He will not stop with Ukraine. So uh, the world needs to look at this and somehow um, our President Biden needs to be a little bit more uh, stricter, stronger with his sanctions so that Putin backs away. Are you calling for military help? So you you think there should be boots on the ground already? Well, not in Ukraine, but if we uh, if we have planes flying over to give them uh, air protection, you know, um, protection in the air. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We need to give them uh, as much military aid as possible. Uh, We have many organizations here now who are collecting money for humanitarian aid uh, because these people have nothing now. Their banks are working, not working. They can get money. I I understand that yesterday I was watching on TV that many of the banks ran out of money already. Mm. Um, So we need to provide financial assistance. These people are going to start seeing hunger, no water, disease. This is a tremendous crisis. Yeah. This is, we're only into it day two, getting into day three. Uh, and already there are thousands of people mobilizing into Poland. Thank God for Poland that they're accepting our people now. I understand Governor Hochul wants to open up the state of New York to bring in some refugees. 
we need to do whatever we can on our end to help these people. They are innocent. They did not ask for this war. They do, do not want a war. I was there in 2015. Uh, these people are loving, caring people. They just want peace and live in a democratic country. That's all they want. Right. Now, you mentioned that you know there is uh, money being raised already in our area. Are you in contact with any of the Ukrainian organizations here or churches? I, uh, I am. I, yes. The main organization is the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. They are raising money. They have a fund right now uh, raising money for, for humanitarian needs. Uh, there are others in Philadelphia. This is important. We need to raise money to help them at this point. And you, you mentioned that Governor Kathy Hochul has opened our, the doors for uh, to accepting refugees here. Well, she's thinking about it. Yes. Thinking about it. Okay, thinking yes. about it. Okay. And, and my thought is, how are they going to get over here? Because I said now they, the, well, for understand, they took over one of the major airports there in the country. I'm assuming that people who have fled have fled mostly by, by car. Or, or even I see images of people walking. Absolutely, by car. Um, the limited amount of trains that they have, uh, or walking, depending yeah. on the distance from Poland. But the Polish border uh, right now is the one that is open, and there are right. um, many of them that are fleeing in, into Poland. And thank God for Poland that it's opened its doors and is accepting our refugees. You know, they're leaving. They're leaving with the clothes that they can barely carry. And this, this is so reminiscent of World War II when my parents came into this country, just with the clothes on their back. And thank God the, the U.S. opened its doors uh, at, at that time for these refugees to come in after World War II. So we're back to square one where we were, time of World War II. That's what I'm hearing a lot, that this is such, such a callback to that, that era, and we can't believe it's happening in this age, in this 2022 that we're happening, that this man, this, this person is just really being breaking international law and invading a peaceful country exactly when we gave up our nuclear arms years ago uh all for the protection and russia was a signatory to the budapest memorandum and now they're violating it they are criminals uh the russian administration the government they are criminals for violating that that memorandum uh, again ukraine gave up all of its nuclear arsenal um, we, we have none. He's claiming that we were building some nuclear arsenal, which we were not. Uh, and, and here we are, back, back to square one, where we were in World War II, between yeah. the Nazis and the Soviets. Uh, so we need to have as much, as many sanctions against Russia as possible so that he backs away. So far, the sanctions have not been enough. They have not deterred him. Uh, he is pressing on. Uh, with his military, and, and I feel for them as well. Mm. I don't think they were they knew what they were in for. I think that they were just bamboozled at this point. I actually know somebody in Ukraine who moved there recently, and I was in contact with them last week, and, and I was telling them, asking the person, aren't you worried about what's happening? Or, you know, Aren't you going to leave your home? And he goes, no, nah, it's happening at the border. It's all politics. Everything's fine. And it was very nonchalant about it. Were you in yeah. contact with your family before? Did they have sort of similar feeling like, yeah, this may happen. It was such a big deal. Yes. And, and this is the, the, the like, um, the irony of the story every time we call them because we were hearing 
a different message here in America, yeah. right? The intel that Putin's going to come in. Time we call them because we were in constant communication, uh, and they're out in the West. They're out in the view, and they're like, "Oh, it's only in the East. It's never going to come back here." And all of a sudden, when he entered Ukraine, he starts bombing all the major cities. Then it became a reality uh, that this is real. Putin means business. He's coming in, uh, you know, and uh, it, it's just a mixed message that they were receiving in the beginning. And now we know what Putin's real goal is, the entirety of Ukraine. So. You, see the, you see the map on TV of all the airstrikes that has happened. And it said it's just not in one part of the, of the country. It's throughout the, every aspect. Every part of the country has been affected by this, in, in, you know, uh, with uh, airstrikes. It's, yeah, well, there's no planes going into Ukraine, right? No commercial planes. Mm -mm. This is going to affect our economy, and it's already affecting our economy here. It's tremendously affecting economy in Europe. Um, so this is, um, this is not going to end very well. So I'm not sure what is going to deter Mr. Putin. And the message that President Biden gave with the sanctions, and he mentioned himself that it's going to take time for him to feel pressure, and, and it seems like... There's no really time for for this, and uh, and the scary thing is when I believe Putin made an announcement saying that if the West in, intervenes militarily wise, the, the the fear of of nuclear war has come up. What are your thoughts on that? Well, they they've taken over the uh, Chernobyl region. Uh, the old nuclear reactor has a sarcophagus on it. So if that is breached in any way, it's going to release more um, nuclear. Um, um, particles into the air. There are five nuclear reactors in the south of Ukraine that are clustered uh, close to the Donbass. Can you imagine if there is a, uh, a missile or a rocket that hits them accidentally? It, it'll be a disaster. Um, I, I was on another webinar uh, earlier with uh, last week with some physicians that are watching over this the ones that are the international physicians group for against nuclear power, that if any one of them goes off, it's going to send out um, enough emission that is 50 times, if not more, that than uh, Hiroshima was, um, it, you know, when we had struck Hiroshima with the A-bomb. So this is a very dangerous game that Mr. Putin is playing because all of this nuclear air will travel throughout his country our country, uh, all around the world. It will yeah. not bode well for anybody. That is that it's, is a concern. It is a concern because you see what happened in Japan when, when their nuclear plant uh, gave out. It was They had to do a swift, immediate Absolutely. action to take care of it. But here we know if something does happen, there's not going to be an immediate response to it because you can't because they're in war. And who's because gonna, of the war. It's, it's just as scary that this like I said, could spread. It's not only affecting there over there. It's going to affect us here uh, globally. Absolutely. Yes, we do not want a nuclear war. That is one thing we do not want. We don't want war to begin with, but yeah. we certainly don't want a nuclear war. Uh, and they do have the nuclear capability, plus we have the nuclear reactors, um, you know, all throughout uh, Ukraine. But in particular, these five that are located in the southern, southeastern end, close to the Donbass region. In legislature, you made a, a motion to, uh, I guess, for the county to to make some kind of proclamation? Did anything come out of that? We don't have a meeting until next week. Yes, we're okay. working on a proclamation, and uh, I will be presenting it at our uh, meeting next Thursday, which is March, oh, I think it's the 3rd. 
if folks are listening to this and want to uh, help in some capacity, what can you name again the organizations that they should be reaching out to or getting the contact with? Right now, the organization that I'm dealing with is the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, UCCA. There is a site there to donate. Uh, the money, 100% of it, is going to um, help Ukrainians, especially for humanitarian aid. We hope that your yes. family stays safe and, and you're in contact with them, but it says the connection is sometimes this body and, and hard to get in contact sometimes. It's so very difficult. Yes. I could not get them this morning. I tried four times, uh, and four times I got the same message that the number is no longer working. So, um, we finally got them through, um, Facebook, um, and, and we communicated with them and thank God for, for some form of communication. But for now, they are, they are good. Um, and we, we pray that they stay well, as well as all the other Ukrainians, because right. there's no place for them to run except for some of the subways. Uh, and, and they have the old bunkers, you know, the, um, bomb shelters that they had from, from way back when. Uh, but anyway, um, I, I don't know if Mr. Putin is ever going to realize that he is in the wrong. Uh, well, some, some people call him just sick. Well, CNN was interviewing one of the, some Ukrainian people in the subway stations and they're saying, no, this guy is sick. This yes. guy is sick just because what he's doing. And I say, when you see those images that people from the hospital, from the NICU unit and just people, uh, you know, picking up everything, like anything they own, clothes on their backs and just leaving and knowing the unknown and when, when, when are they going to return back home? Does your family, does have your family express that to you that we hope to go back soon or, or what is, what is sort of their outlook? They don't know because when I've spoken to them, they have no idea. Um, they, when I spoke to them yesterday, yesterday I was able to get them on the phone. Actually, I couldn't get them. They got me. They called here. Hmm. Um, they were going to hunker down in, in their home, but they decided to leave early in the morning when the sirens started to go off and they didn't know what was going on. So they just left. They went further west, uh, to a, another friend's house where it, it's further away from the main city. Uh, again, you know, no one knows what's going to happen. That particular airport in the view is still functional. It's still under Ukraine. Uh, all the others, um, the major ones have been taken over by Russia from what we understand, from what we see on TV. Uh, but you know, they're, they're, a, they're in a very difficult position. Ukraine is in a very difficult position because they're fighting this war alone. Um, NATO can't help them. Their, their, uh, you know, military is on the outskirts, on the border uh, of Ukraine, but there's no boots on the ground from NATO in Ukraine. So they're in it alone. They're doing the best they can. People are dying. Civilians are dying. Civilians are being displaced. And the only way we can stop this is by putting stronger sanctions on Mr. Putin and really depleting him of all of his assets. So he feels the pain, and in particular to cut Russia off from the SWIFT system, the international yeah. financial uh, system, uh, you know, and even take away their credit card capabilities. Right. Everything um, at our disposal that we have in our toolbox, we need to use against them yeah. to make it to make it hurt for him. It's, it's tragedy what happened. Nadia, thank you so much for, for joining us, letting us know what's happening. And please, the, our, our, the airways are open to you if you ever want to come back. Give us an update on your family, especially, and, and just let us know how we can help uh, the situation uh, here locally. 
I appreciate that. Thank you so yeah. much for the opportunity. Thank you. We just heard that conversation with Nadia Reich, District 2 legislator for Sullivan County, a Ukrainian-American, spoke with Patricio Rabayo late last week. We heard a part of that interview on the local edition or heard the rest of it on uh, Radio Chatskill just last week. So if you uh, want to find it again, it is on our archive and on our podcast for those programs from late last week. And uh, again, some uh, some information about world events have changed since we did that interview, but the general uh, gist is pretty much the same, and the value of hearing the local impact of these global events is still there. Along those lines, we talk about local response to these global events, and uh, we want to let you know that there will be a community rally to support Ukraine. This is happening on Friday, this coming Friday at 4 p.m. at Lumberland Town Hall in Glen Spey, a community rally support Ukraine on Friday at 4 p.m. Also letting you know that uh, this is ordinarily we'd be hearing Sabrina Artel's trailer talk. Sabrina had the night off tonight uh, so we could bring you some of the special programming. Uh, but Sabrina will be back for a regular time in this time slot on trailer talk in two weeks. But before that, Sabrina will also be bringing us a special program on this topic. And Sabrina's interview with local Ukrainian-American Larissa Drisco. That will air as a special next Friday at 3 p.m. So Friday the 11th in place of fresh air. That afternoon we'll have an hour-long special.